0: This podcast is brought to you by DMX, made by the largest global e-discovery software and service provider, Epic. DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com slash DMX. This episode is also sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all in one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bnacom Bloomberg Law.
1: Welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. This podcast focuses on the business of law, how the largest corporate law departments and their law firms do business. Big Law Business hosted our Summit West in San Francisco on November 15th. For today's episode, we're bringing you a roundtable discussion from that summit about the business of law. Michael Haitha, deals editor for Bloomberg News, served as our moderator. The panelists included two law firm leaders and two in house leaders, the chair of Wilson Sonsini, Katie Martin, the chair of Oric; Mitch Zookley, the general counsel of Workday, Jim Shaughnessy, and the general counsel of Malwarebytes, Ed Brown. Our podcast begins with Jim Shaughnessy responding to a question about controlling corporate law department costs.
2: We try to think about um, uh, the the biggest the highest level a big picture of how to most effectively provide services to the company and all the services that we need and we have an internal service arm and then a extended external service arm so we we look for it to be be seamless and we look for it at every step to really know how to al- align cost with value that that uh, you know high quality services particularly high quality legal services are, n- are not inexpensive what we don't really want the company to have to pay for our services that aren't really aligned to, to, to value. And, and that, more than anything else, you know, determines what assignments we, we give to, to outside counsel, to which outside counsel do you, we use, and which, which uh, specific activities we, we ask them to do. And I actually find that having this conversation uh, with the leaders of the firms is really very helpful, and they start smiling because they don't want to spend a lot of time on things that are, are, are low margin for them or that will make us unhappy. They, they, <laughs> people do really want to spend time on things that, that make us happy, and those are the ones that deliver lots of value.
3: Yeah, I, value is one of the things we look at, predictability as well, to make sure that when somebody's providing services to us, they stay within budget, and if it's going to go over budget, that we get that notice in advance. And then internally, we look to automate everything we can. So if it's routine work, we spend a lot of time with our systems teams, automating that. Also, from a staffing perspective, we look to take tasks away from lawyers. So if there's somebody who has a better skill set in project management, we'll bring that skill set in-house, then the lawyers can focus on actually practicing law versus
2: kind of managing the internal business. Okay. I think it's actually a pretty interesting trend that Ed just talked about, that the first legal department I worked in was probably 80, 20 lawyers, even 90, 10, 10 lawyers versus other people. And we're roughly half and half now, mm-hmm. half half lawyers and half non-lawyers, because we found that, that there are some tasks that the non-lawyers can do, not only more efficiently, but also more effectively. Mm-hmm. Interesting lawyers. point. Um, at, at law firms, you've got that same, perhaps, shift in lawyers to
4: non-lawyers.
5: Yeah, I mean we're, I mean, we, look, we're in the relationship business. I mean, so, so Jim's exactly right. We don't want to be doing anything that is going to upset our clients or make them feel like they're spending a lot of money and they're not getting value. So we really are focused on centers of excellence, you know, really building out our expertise and and, and also being a real strategic partner with our clients. So that, in you know, sometimes they just sometimes they do need extra people, and we want to be there and help them when they need extra people. Sometimes they need really good advice and really good judgment. We want to be there when they need that. Um, we obviously there's certain things that you know they they're, they're going to leverage more litigation uh, transactions et cetera. but you know investing in that long-term relationship is key so from our perspective you know we we want to we want to partner with them in thinking through how to come up with alternative fee arrangements and really get to the heart of delivering value because it, you know it's it's a it's a more interesting business from our perspective as well than and and over over the years um, you know, a lot of the work that I can think of doing 30 years ago when I was a first-year associate, yeah, a lot, of that, a lot of that work now has been taken in-house, or, or it's being automated in a way. Um, you know, we're, we're creating a lot of online tools for our young lawyers to, you know, automate, like, corporate formations and term sheets and working group lists. I mean, a lot of the things that we would sort of put together on our own historically, you know, we can, we can do a lot more efficiently now, and we're going to continue to do that. I think, I think there's actually, you know, a momentum shift right now. I think there's a lot more of that happening. It's bubbling up a lot. I suspect Mitch is seeing this at his firm as well, which is a lot of the lawyers in our firm are coming forth and saying, hey, we, we could do this. If we did have this, we could be more efficient about this. So we're looking um, to ways to be more and more efficient. And, and along the way, we're spending a lot of time talking to our clients to understand what they what they need and how we can help partner with them in that.
6: Yeah, I think Katie's got that exactly right. Um, it, there's no question that that law firms every day are expected to deliver increasing levels of value. Uh, and that, that comes in many ways. You know, one of them is that, uh, it's absolutely true that there's uh, a disaggregation of work. It doesn't all have to be done by one firm. Uh, there's many alternatives, and there's no question that our clients expect more analytical rigor as well uh, and more quantitative rigor behind uh, the, the work product we, de- we deliver. So we have to leverage technology, have to be able to come up with the ability to figure out what data we have and, and share that and bring it to bear. The good thing about that is it's actually much more rewarding as a lawyer. Um, you know, if you're If you're able to focus on things that are less routine and focus on and and narrow your scope to the things that you're really excellent at, it tends to be a more rewarding work environment. Mm -hmm. And further, I think that going back to this theme of innovation affecting lots of industries, I think the pace of that innovation is actually going at a much greater, uh, greater pace than regulations keeping up with it. And so that means that there's a very important legal function helping people navigate those shoals. You know, business models, we see it dozens of examples of businesses that are very different and innovative and are pushing the envelope as to, uh, to what business models uh, existed only a few years ago. That's incredibly interesting work. Mm-hmm. It requires you to have real expertise, however, it requires you to be able to collaborate. Usually across seams within your firm in order to provide expertise and regulatory is becoming increasingly uh, important at all at all times. So while there's certainly incredible change going on, it's not unwelcome change, and I think it, it allows us to partner more deeply, to have more client dialogue, and hopefully to be involved in sort of more thoughtful and not legal problems than than may have been the norm only a couple of years ago. Yeah. how are firms keeping up with the technology
4: itself? And, and, and there's a, a wide range. What, what are the limits on it too?
6: There's a wide range of responses. Um, you know, obviously, if there's a strong preference I think to recognize that we are not technologically, we're not technology providers. We're, we're better off buying things off the shelf and, and adopting them to our use. But we announced just yesterday that we've created something called Auric Labs, which is a small skunk works of developers. And those instances where we can't uh, find a product that's really answering a, a, a very clear client need, and we'll, we'll go ahead and develop things on our, on our own. Um, I don't want to suggest that that's an area of deep expertise for us. It's not. That would be arrogant. But it's an area where I think increasingly we're going to have to uh, be comfortable and and become more facile because there are times where clients demand solutions that are not available, and we still have to find a way to to deliver those services. Okay.
4: To to what extent are the courts in some ways sort of the ultimate limit on what you can do technology-wise. Technology I mean, for example, I, I would not want to be the lawyer who goes before you know, a federal judge and says, uh, there's a mistake on page 34. The robot did that. Sorry, Your Honor. Right? And, and until the courts sort of validate everything that you're doing or, or allow you to do more, what, what's the next revolution? What, what could happen that isn't happening yet?
5: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, obviously we can all rely on tools and it can help, but it's not going to—it's not going to be a good alternative to a good legal judgment. That you know, a, a, we're a person standing there making a judgment. So if if you end up missing something by automating too much, then we've 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 automated too far. I mean, obviously a lot of the things that we work on. I mean, dating back to when I first started practicing law, I mean, some some of the when I talk to young attorneys and I tell them that some of the most important work they're going to do is due diligence. I mean, literally reviewing contracts, which seems like. You know crazy commodity work, but sometimes it can it can be a huge value for the company to understand and do that right and so automating and using AI tools which we 're doing more of now we 're obviously using a lot of tools to help organize documents to um, you know p- put them online to so that we can so we don 't have to spend all the manpower doing the tracking and the organizing that we used to do we can even use these tools to identify provisions and contracts and speed things up, but there is an element of uh, a person still needing to be Involved to make sure that you don't don't miss something either on a cor- on a transactional side or you know more you know just as importantly on the litigation side in the need discovery situation. I think,
3: yeah, I think, I think the tools exactly still have difficulty right. putting. Sorry. I think the tools still have difficulty putting all the pieces together. Yeah. They can kind of highlight the issues whether it's diligence or yeah. litigation. They can't really. N- nest everything in the proper way. So that's really where we rely on the outside firms to come up with that. And I think there also have, there are gaps when they try to identify what's not there. They're really good at saying, here are all the things that are there, but many times they miss what's actually not. Okay, In and a that's the human factor
6: mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. into play. Okay. But the, the, the one thing to note, I think, is that you know, AI is a tool which isn't a substitute for good lawyering. Right. But it is a belt and suspender which can uh, allow you to pr- provide work both more cheaply or with greater value but also potentially better because it's, a, it's another way to check. And, you know, if, if the AI uh, turns out that this contract provision is, is something that we should have paid attention to, it's a great additional uh, check on the, on the human process. Oh, good point.
4: Let's carry it out You know, 10, 20 years. The, the firm of the future, the general counsel's office of the future, how do all these trends play out? What's it going to look like? What's, is it going to be even a smaller number of lawyers in those offices in the future and, and more people with other specialties? Or has it reached a balance? Whatever.
5: Thoughts? Well I was just gonna make the comment that there, you know, while while we're all getting a lot more efficient and while I think law school enrollment is down, there still is a need for lawyers. I mean, I think what you'll find is pretty much every in-house lawyer, legal department, and law firm will tell you that we're actively recruiting and hiring and looking for people. So there there isn't a shortage uh, at all of a need for people. And my sense is that that while it may not grow at the same rate that it has historically, you know, with the with the advent of, you know, very large legal departments departments, departments and uh, with especially with you know a lot of a lot of the clients that we represent have law departments that are bigger than our law firm I mean uh, that's not uncommon and so you know there's a lot of lawyers so my sense is it will be you know it's going to continue to move in the direction it is it's going to be a mixture of of you know lawyers but providing high value service together with non-lawyers together with automated tools Mm -hmm. and again I I think law firms are part of an important ecosystem for in-house lawyers and I think the combination of that together provides you know the best outcome for for companies and the advice that they get so you know my sense is it'll continue to evolve and won't be a completely different picture
6: Okay. I think the leverage model will change, though, uh, okay. uh, I'm guessing, in that we'll go from a more traditional pyramid structure to something that looks maybe more like a rocket ship or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, much uh, much less steep in terms of its curve, and that we'll uh, leverage contract attorneys more, more just-in-time solutions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. leverage tech more, and you'll find, I think, more and more of a focus about being the absolute best in particular areas as opposed to doing a broad uh,
2: a number of services. I s- yeah, it's interesting, uh, but I don't really have a view of how many legal jobs will be compared to now or how the growth will be compared to other sectors of the economy or other professions. I think it's a really interesting question. I just don't have any insights. But what I, I believe is that the jobs um, at the you know, top of the profession and jobs working for Silicon Valley companies or law firms that serve Silicon Valley are, are really at the top of the profession, will be more interesting. They will be, I mean, they've gotten more interesting over the last 10 or 15 years, I think they'll be even more interesting over the next 10 or 15 years. Something Mitch said really resonated with me, and so Katie said too, which is, uh, as a young lawyer a lot of years ago, a really, really, really lot of years ago, I would be, I would sit down with you know boxes of documents in a conference room, and someone would say, "Well, see you in three weeks. Uh, don't go home too early," um, and they would never tell me what too early was, but it, something around midnight, you know, <laughs> uh, and and come back with a report that will summarize what's in these documents. And it wasn't clear that these reports were ever looked at in in any way other than if there was a big flag, they would but now you're really looking for the insights and, and a lot of the, the work the rote work is being done uh, automatically mm-hmm. uh, but the the important thing is really to get the insights of the professionals on this and so you know diligence is a perfect example that you, you mentioned that if we have whoever we have doing diligence it's not just you know the gotcha to find the one contract that's going to be harmful for our business model it's really to give us insights on the business insights about how it operates insights on the dynamics and and I think we'll all be called upon for to do more of that, which is a lot more fun than finding the, the gotcha clause. So that sort
4: of goes to if 20 years ago or 15 years ago when you were starting out, right? Yeah, you're being generous, but thank you. Okay. We'll call it 10. All right. <laughs> um, if, if the requirement for a, a new associate at that point was to have somebody who's willing to dig through 15 file boxes and shout Eureka at some moment with her eyes glazed over after how many sleepless nights. What's the ideal candidate now? Who are you looking for to come in and say, yeah, I know how to
3: set up? I think the paradigms actually totally shift from that. I think you want yeah. somebody who's very creative and our clients are pushing us, whether it's my company or the law firm clients, to figure out how to solve problems. Right? That's why they want us. They've got a problem they want to solve. So I think you want somebody who's highly creative and has excellent judgment. I think those are the types of things that are going to be able to make them provide really high quality advice to you. Because they're pushing new business models and they're pushing them in different countries and sometimes or in, in totally different industries. So you need somebody to help you think through those issues, not just plow through documents.
4: Can you give an example of the type of creativity even sort of as a generic situation nope. if not a specific one right now what, is, what does it mean to be creative in terms of a associate or well, first you know starting a lawyer I, I th-
3: It's a little harder down at that level, but I think as you move up the value chain when you want to solve a problem that's transnational like privacy, right? How do you come up with solutions that work in Europe, Asia, in the US? Those those are difficult problems that there's no cookie-cutter solution for. So you need to actually understand the client's business and then model a legal solution that helps accelerate the business. Okay. Part of the data that you showed earlier on described that there is an uptick
6: in activity internationally. And so I think people who are comfortable working on cross-border teams Mm -hmm. have a greater premium than they did 15 years ago. That deal activity will probably only accelerate. And companies tend to have international work earlier and earlier in their life cycles. Uh, in addition, I think that people work now with many more companies than they did 15 years ago. <coughs> Why is that? The cost of uh, of technology has decreased sufficiently that you know, companies are much more capital efficient than they were a few years ago, and as a result, uh, you see a lot more companies getting served and uh, by, by the typical lawyer. So, someone who can keep track of many more you know things, keep many more balls in the air, is an important important piece of it. And I think there's probably even more of a of a premium today than there was 15 years ago on teamwork. Uh, and one of the interesting things to me is that legal education hasn't changed at all in 15 years. Uh, it's still very much the same way it was in Litchfield, Connecticut, in the 1780s or something like that. Unlike business schools, which give people grades based on team, you know, team participation, law schools don't. I wonder if that will change in the next 15 years, because on the first day that someone comes into the practice of law, they are part of a team. Uh, a team of professionals above and below them uh, on that chart. And I think increasingly you're working, as, as the work is disaggregated, you're probably working with people outside of your firm and at other places. You're also working on problems that aren't only in one discipline, finance or corporate or IP litigation. You're, you're really having bunches of people with different expertise work together on teams. I think there's more of a premium on teamwork than there than there ever has been. Okay.
4: How do you keep these good people? Once they're on board, how do you keep people at your office rather than having them migrate to other opportunities elsewhere? Because there are going to be other opportunities elsewhere at certain points, right?
5: Yeah, I mean, for, from yeah. from my perspective, it's building good connections, you know, individual, personal connections with people. Um, that that's, you know, is tried and true and will never change, in my view, especially in a law firm. I suspect it's the same in, in-house. Um, I also think it's important that they have great work, you know, that they have great opportunities, but they also understand what their professional career opportunities are, and also that they feel like somebody cares and wants to mentor and and be focused on on them and cares about you know what they're doing. And I think those sorts of things matter. I mean, it mattered to me, I know, way back when, but I think it matters even more to the uh, to our younger attorneys these days.
6: I think that Katie's got that exactly right. The only thing I'd add on that is that. I think that there's more of a premium on training than ever before Mm -hmm. and more of an expectation of feedback. I think that diversity and inclusion are really an important thing, and agility is important. People expect you to to be more flexible and not to have a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all approach to their careers and to be able to move away from a lockstep uh, model to a more personalized model, all of which I think is really critical to to, retaining talent. Further, I think that law firms are are getting more sophisticated about viewing people going in-house as not not necessarily a failure. That's an extension Uh, and your alumni network I think becomes increasingly important because we're not going to buck the tide that people will go Mm in-house. Having them go in-house, feeling that they were well-trained, they have a meaningful relationship and loyalty to you for the time that they spent at your organization is increasingly important. Okay, so those those friendships extend. And and
2: it's it's actually interesting. We've briefed this this gap because we don't consider staying in a law firm a failure anymore. That doesn't mean that you can't get a good business job uh, if you stay in a law firm. There are actually good careers that you can have a happy and fulfilling lives if you stay in a law firm. <laughs> um, uh, but in all seriousness, one of the things we try to do is, is really keep it fun, and that might seem, it's not just giving people an opportunity to go into San Francisco and slide down the slide, it's really making sure that, that every day at work is, I maybe mean not every day, most days at work are, are really enjoyable, meaning they work in a fun, high-energy environment, people get a chance to do really interesting work, uh, they get variety, and that we do pay a lot of attention to their professional development. We, we think about this a lot. We, we talk a lot about T-shaped development for our people, which we want people who are really, really broad, but are also deep in their areas of specialization, and we, we try to a- attend to t- attend to both, and, and as I said, keep it a, a very fun, high-energy place to work. Okay.
4: Beyond the, uh, you know, cliche, pull table in the office, idea of fun or right. the slide in San Francisco. Do you see the the legal profession changing in terms of becoming more flexible in terms of just hours and, and family friendly? I mean, there's the old joke about the uh, new lawyer who built tw- the 27-hour day. He said, well, because I was on a flight from New York to LA. and um, that that was an old standard, and that was sort of a, the the macho aspect of of if you were a good lawyer that means you could do that um, Has that changed and, and do you see that as a beneficial change going forward
2: Kitty?
5: Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, we obviously productivity is an important metric for law firms, but I think um, you know, billable hours—it's not the be-all and end-all anymore. It can't possibly be because it's not—it's not a really good measure of the value that we're providing for our clients. And moreover, it really is important that we provide a good balance of both—you know—allowing an environment for our for our lawyers to thrive both uh, personally and professionally. So, so while there's a there's a high emphasis on on productivity and you know and providing value to clients, it's not necessarily measured just in terms of hours. And that's the really important thing. Great. Thank you. Eric, it looks like you have a question from
4: the audience. So
2: our, our slide question was, can you share any horror stories? But I, I want to, regarding transactional work in particular, but I want to sort of twist that around a little bit and, and see if we can ask our GCs, what do you see uh, when, you, when working with firms and the firms that you work with, what's the biggest risk to their continuing work with you, with both of you as you look forward? What, as, as law firms evolve, uh, whether they're, they're, they start in, tech incubators or otherwise, what do you see as the risk to their viability in, in, in the years ahead? I don't know if
3: this is a risk to their viability, but it's, it's a frustration of mine. It's, it's To get a paper bill, it's, it's, it's absurd to me that we don't have integrated billing systems that can show me hour by hour where the work is being done. Some firms do it, but more than you would think don't. So I think they need to upgrade their technology. But I, I, I think there's always going to be a place for the relationship between in-house and outside counsel because... They do things at a much deeper level than you can do in-house. Unless you have a a huge deal team, you can't support that kind of work. So I think that there's, there's always that relationship, and you're always willing to pay for that good advice, but please fix the billing system so they're easier to manage so I can give my weekly reports to my finance team.
2: Jim, how do you get your? So I I, I could echo that, but I but that's, the the big <laughs> let me talk a little bit about our strategy, which is we tend to be very relationship focused, not transactional focused, and and that comes with a, a little bit of an opportunity cost because as people who are here from private practice know, it's a it's a pretty you operate a pretty competitive segment in the industry. There are lots of people who are eager to do work for us, and they tell me that every day, um, multiple times. But we've that's not how we we choose. To do business and to look at at every um, project we have or every opportunity and, and sort of auction it off. Instead, we we build relationships because we want the firms to invest in our business, understand our business, and act in a way that's informed with our business. So, uh, if a firm doesn't appreciate that this is the opportunity we've given them to make an investment and understand the Im- impact on the business and the value they're providing, then there's a good chance that they'll be replaced by another firm and we'll give somebody else a try. Because that's what ends up really being important to us. It's less about you know, getting the lowest cost for any particular transaction or assignment. It's really about getting the, the most value. And that, and that means that, that we want firms to be really conscious of what trying to accomplish as a business and to, and to really organize their activity around that. Mike, let me hand it back to you. Okay, Bob,
4: last question. Uh, Building on that a little bit, or actually, let's go this way. Um, Politics. There are a lot of things happening in the world, um, which do affect probably a lot of the things on your desk and screens. So what type of political forces do you think will will be at play for the M&A, IPO world, um, and the law business? Um, There are certainly regulatory aspects of it. There are um, sensibility in terms of who's investing money where. And this is, a, I know you all have thoughts. <laughs>
5: Well, I mean, the one that I know a lot of our clients will be focused on is what's going on with stock options and whether they'll be taxed on right. vesting. That will not be a popular outcome if that happens. So I think we're all keeping our fingers crossed that stays out of any, any tax bill change. Okay. I know that's kind of a short term issue, but that's one that's right. been high profile recently. I mean, to say the least, I mean, tax, tax changes
4: are on everyone's mind, mm-hmm. um, including the lower capital gains, the re- intent to reverse offshoring. Of capital and such. Um, any predictions is the last question. Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen?
6: I'm going to answer a slightly different question for a second. I think that all of the policies around data, privacy, and security are incredibly important. I think mm-hmm. um, perhaps not as immediate as those that might, uh, might ruin the innovation around stock options or the innovation incentive around stock options. But I think you know, the, the whole host of regulatory interpretations of the things that affect data privacy and security will be where where the action's at for the next, you know, foreseeable future.
4: Okay, interesting. This, uh,
2: my, my thought is um, it it used to be that we would complain about things in Washington or Brussels or someplace else not working well. It was easy for people in the private sector to complain. That it, <laughs> didn't work well, people didn't think things through, and it turns out that they did, and things used to work pretty well. And now we see lots of decisions being made very, very quickly with potentially s- significant applica- uh, ramifications that don't seem to be yeah. thought through as well, and so I think we'll all have to come to grips with what that means. Yeah. Interesting.
4: Okay. Great. i like thank you all very much. Thank, thank you. you. Please join me in thanking them as well.
1: Thank you to Katie Martin, Mitch Zukley, Jim Shaughnessy, and Ed Brown for their insights. And thank you to Michael Haitha for moderating our panel. For more on the business of law, check out biglawbusiness.com. You can learn more about the Big Law Business Events series where we recorded this episode there. If you'd like to contact us, our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at BigLawBiz. Follow me on Twitter at Josh Block NYC. We'll be back soon with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it.
0: This episode was brought to you by DMX, made by the largest global e discovery software and service provider, Epic. DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com DMX. This episode was also sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law.